Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Five Things Podcast. This is our last episode of this real dumpster fire of the year known as 2020. And we here at Gray have reached a bit of a milestone. This is our 50th episode of the Five Things Podcast. Really amazing and exciting stuff. And I'm excited to celebrate with Amanda and Beth and take a look ahead to 2021. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Beth. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Kenny. We sat down with a few of our friends from different industries to ask them what they see on the horizon for 2021. We didn't want a 2020 recap. No looking back here. We are eyes forward and focused on the future. So you'll hear about trends in financial tech, gaming, data, so much more. This is a slightly longer episode than we normally do, but we hope you stick with us all the way through while you're enjoying your holidays with family and friends. We have lots to cover, so let's jump right in. For those of you who have listened to the show from the start, you may remember Katy Perry, not the pop star, but our friend, the VP of Marketing at Public.com. She has her finger on the pulse of the intersection of financial tech and social media. Here's Katy. Hi, Katie. Hi, Kenny. So glad to have you back. Friend of the pod, been on before. Katie, what's the first thing? Awesome. So the biggest thing for our space, financial services, um, that I'm seeing is that I think business and financial news are really going mainstream. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about this. Movie stars want to be singers. Singers want to be movie stars. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Um, And entrepreneurs are the new celebrities. And the result of this is more people are interested in business. More people are following companies, IPOs. Um, And I think that's great. And it's all kind of tying into this interest that people are having in the stock market and an excitement for participating. I love that. That's amazing. I find myself following those IPOs like they're almost movie premieres. So whether it be you know, Snow or Palantir or some of these like names that you see all over Twitter. So what's the second thing? Let's hear it. All right. The second thing is you can buy stocks like you can buy crypto. And this is something that's kind of interesting. If you followed kind of the uh, initial sort of boom of crypto, I think 2016 to 17, it was kind of heating up. The reason it was really kind of going viral was because you could buy crypto fractionally. You could buy a piece of a full share, if you will. Um, and so a recent innovation in investing in the stock market that we offer on public is the ability to buy a slice of a share. So you can buy $1 worth of Amazon stock, which is currently trading for $3,000 a share. This is really big, I think, just for learning. Um, Because in the past, you needed to have a lot of money to have a hands-on learning experience. Now, like I said, even with the example of getting, maybe you invest $1 on an IPO day, just kind of follow along. For a little bit of money, you can have that hands-on experience and learn. And I think this is the fractional investing is part of the reason retail investing or regular people like you and I investing is growing so much um, in the past year. So... Katie, tell us what the third thing you see coming up for us all in 2021. So a little broader outside of investing, I think money transparency. What's really, really interesting that I've seen is this generational shift of how money is viewed. I grew up in a household where it was it was kind of taught that it's rude to talk about money. I think a lot of people, millennial and up, can kind of uh, relate to that experience. 
What you're seeing though with is is a change. Um, you started to see it with the millennials doing things like you know sharing salary information, slowly kind of becoming more transparent with money. Public did a survey, and the the Gen Zers investors who took it were way more likely to say they talk about money with friends um, than the you know boomer age people who took the survey. And so I think this is all great. I think you know, talking about money doesn't have to mean flexing to your friends. It could just be having conversations about investment strategy or kind of just like spitballing ideas. Um, and when you kind of get this stuff out into the open, it's it's easier to learn together. So I think it's a really good trend and it's healthy. Um, one thing I always read is, and we found it in our own study, is women are more like, less likely to talk to their friends about this stuff. And that's one thing we're really trying to change at public. Our app's 40% women. We would like it to be 50%. But just when women aren't talking about this stuff with their friends, that's a disadvantage compared to, you know, male counterparts who are getting these ideas in the open and sharing them with their friends and learning. So really important to talk about this stuff, even if you're not, you know, sharing how much money you're, you have or you want to spend talking about these topics is it could be fun, but it's also just healthy. So I think we're going to see more of that in 2021. So I believe we are on number four. Yeah, which means our time together is almost over. But I let's know. hear, let's let's drag four and five out so that we can in, enjoy each other's company longer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So number four, I think, is the idea of access with responsibility. Um, as uh, technology has helped democratize things like investing, made it easier for people to actually experience these um, tools and investing strategies. Um, what, what we're really seeing is along with that increase in access, there needs to be a responsibility to educate and offer guardrails to make sure that people just coming in are having a great experience in the stock market and not one where they, they accidentally you know, do something without having the context and you know, risk more than they're willing to risk or you know, move, move money into a place where they're not really sure what they're doing. Um, and so again, this is kind of like, if we're building that fast car, we need a great seatbelt. So what does that seatbelt look like? Public has things like safety labels on stocks that might be risky. So if a company went bankrupt and you go to try to invest in that company in our app, you actually have to swipe and acknowledge that you have the context before you invest. We won't tell you what to do, but, um, I think it's, I think that's going to be more and more important as we democratize, um, make sure people have the context and education they need to, to have a good experience. And so I think we're going to be seeing more and more of that. That's an unbelievable uh, thing. And it's, and it's really interesting. And I, I think it's an important one to dwell on a bit. Uh, with COVID raging and people sitting at home and trying to find new hobbies, the stock market, and particularly you heard a lot about the Robin Hood bros, became like a, a massive, massive trend that we were seeing early on. Uh, during the quarantine, and people were making massive investment mistakes. They were investing in options. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't understand the market. They were letting contracts um, expire where they were actually in the money, and they were on the hook for tens of thousands yep. of dollars. There were stories about um, young investors who thought that they owed, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, and unfortunately, you know, they. They did some serious things that were unfortunate because they didn't know what was going on. And I think this is, yes, you talk about it sort of in the context of the previous things being a little bit drier, but frankly, um, this is almost like you went really, really fast. 
uh, in the car that you're talking about and you realize that you went past so you slowed up a tiny bit and you're like okay better put the seatbelt on and i think that that is an unbelievably important thing um to to talk about and to make sure that people understand and i love that you guys do this i think it's it's great I think a lot of people like that are kind of new to it, see those headlines and they think that like the day trading kind of more speculative strategy is the same at, or is represents all investing. And they don't really understand that there's a difference. And then beyond that, they don't understand that the long-term investing, it, it could be fun. It could be something you engage with daily. You know, we think of our members as, you know, we want daily active investors not in a sense of they're moving things in their portfolio every day, multiple times a day. You actually can't day trade on public. But are they engaged in the communities they're investing in? Are they having conversations? Are they in chat groups? Are they reading news articles? Um, dollar cost averaging, where you're gradually adding over time, is a great way for people to continue to kind of um, you know, share thoughts around their investments in a way that you know is more of the long-term focus because our community is about 75% long-term investors. So I think that kind of misnomer of the difference between those two things, but also it could be really fun to be a long-term investor. It's not super boring. Uh, you can still kind of talk about these topics and it could still be fun. And we, we think that investing can be fun. We just want to make sure people are having fun with the right contacts and education to make sure it's a good experience for them. It's like a good bottle of booze. Drink responsibly. Exactly. You don't have to drink the whole bottle to have fun. Well, sippy sip. Well, we are on to our fifth thing. Let's hear it. Okay, the fifth is my favorite. The fifth the, uh, trend we're going to see in financial services is a really uh, fundamental change to the culture of investing and the stock market overall. I think we've seen more and more people entering the stock market over the past few years. That's great. Um, but at least from my purview, it's been more of the same, the same kind of profiles of people that have always kind of been into this stuff. And if we really want to democratize it and we really want to build a bigger community of people investing, we need to change the culture. Um, whenever I ask someone to close their eyes and picture an investor, they always say the same two things. It's either a guy in a blue jacket on Wall Street or some dude sitting in front of two monitors with a Red Bull. I think those are the stereotypical images, um, but it's changing. You don't need to look like that to be an investor. Investing is much broader than that. Um, people from different professional backgrounds can participate. You don't have to be a banker or kind of a Wall Street insider. And so I'm really excited about this because I think Going back to point one, as this is all becoming more mainstream, more people are interested, more people want to participate, and we can truly, truly broaden um, the profile of people that participate in the stock market. And that's super important to us at Public, and we're going to be doing our part to push this one along. Amen to that. Having this conversation, talking about financial services, broadening, broadening the definition of who invests uh, to make a more diverse and inclusive space is incredible. I love it. Um, and I do think public is on the front foot of that and driving that that change. So kudos and congratulations to you and the team. I love, love, love my public.com swag. Uh, if you see me walking the dog in the park, I'll generally be wearing my invest hat, which I'm wearing right now. Yes. Katie, why don't you tell everyone your Twitter handle so they can follow you? I'm Katie E. Perry, so two E's in a row. There you go. And uh, you should follow Katie. She's got great thoughts on Twitter. I love one of my favorite follows out there. Thanks. 
Man, Katie is brilliant. It's always great to have her on the show. Next is my conversation with Willis Wigan from Team Face Clan. If you're not familiar, Face Clan is probably one of the biggest esports teams playing across many games, creating content, and even making their own merch. Willis and I are going to chat about what's on the horizon for gaming and content in 2021. Here's Willis. So Phase Clan started in 2010 uh, on YouTube. We were doing trick shots, uh, like the folks over at Dude Perfect, but in video games. So our guys at age 14 would jump off of buildings in Call of Duty, spin around three or four times, and hit a headshot. And that gained a lot of views in 2010. And over the course of a few years, our guys started to be more recognized in the community. So that blossomed into them turning the camera from their video games around to their faces. And they started uh, filming their personality, the lives behind a gamer. And from there, we have now a full content studio at FaZe Clan where we're producing long-form premium videos, short-form content for all the social handles. And then also we have a live streaming business as well. So we have a bunch of folks at FaZe Clan who are streaming daily on Twitch and YouTube. And then also FaZe Clan, we actually put on our own live broadcast uh, tournaments where We'll bring in sponsors, we'll put up cash prizes and invite a bunch of pros and other influencers in the community uh, to, to have some fun and, and win some prizes. I really want to hear what you're looking forward to in 2021, because some yes. you guys were really on, on the game in 2020. We have a brand new shiny year, untainted, beautiful mm-hmm. to come. So let's jump in. Let's jump into your number one of the five things in 2021. Let's hear it. Oh, the number one prediction. I think there are going to be so many opportunities for entertainment to happen throughout the the calendar year. There's going to be multiple different non-endemic brands who are going to come into gaming in a huge way and put investment behind live stream productions and tournaments. Um, This could be concerts in game so fortnite had a great test use case with travis scott um phase clan we, we we actually have put on i think six tournaments in 2020 we plan to put on 12 um next year so and, and these aren't just in call of duty or the biggest game you're also going to see viral video games so this is something that really hasn't happened in the past um but now with this, such a strong community behind influencers, um, both on YouTube and Twitch, if there's a game that comes out and it, it's super entertaining and people realize that their community loves watching it, that game's just going to blow up so fast that uh, the smartest brands, or the smartest advertisers are going to quickly jump in um, and, and react quickly. So two examples. Fall Guys. Fall Guys was a party game, super fun, family-friendly, hysterical to play. You know, it it the Twitter handle Fall Guys went from zero to I think 1.5 million in two weeks. Uh everybody was streaming it for the period of two weeks. So I think that's gonna happen a few few times next year. We're we're not we have no idea who the developer is, we have no idea what this game is going to be, 
But there are going to be, I think, three to four games next year that are just going to blow up and be super relevant for, you know, a good two to four week span. Love that. And I, you've actually articulated something I've been thinking about recently, too, is like, I think if you asked people that either are just getting into gaming or maybe starting to get into gaming um, about the community and, you know, what games they play in, say, 2017, 18, 19, it, I think it used to feel kind of like a closed off, you know, for instance, you jump into Call of Duty, you might not be fantastic right away. It might be a little bit scary. You might not know where to start. And so I, I love these kind of fringe games that you're mentioning and because they it opens the door for people to start to get in and, you know, make connections and have conversations and, you know, join the community as we're talking about with a little bit lower of a barrier, like, you know, Fall Guys and, you know, um, Among Us and that the crazy duck one that really popped off this year. Like, those are just really odd ball games that you can be good at. You can have fun with. They're just not taken as seriously. And, and I exactly. think as the community, I, I think the community is pretty inclusive in most games. And I think that that's a stigma that uh, kind of new players need to, to rethink a little bit um, after this year. But it also just gives people kind of a way in and a place to start if maybe your first person shooter is not your skill set or yep. you don't really um, you don't want to jump into a live game and, and risk being kind of the, the weakest link or whatever it may be. So I, I love those games. And I think that's another way, too, that they've really taken off is for people that maybe I would say don't have the traditional gaming skill sets as they've been known previously. So another bold prediction that I have is the increase in rise in mobile gaming and not just mobile gaming because it's it's been a pretty consistent rise since the dawn of this of the the you know the iphone but viewership in terms of an entertainment outlet and also esports are going to be pretty relevant next year and here's why um first off uh, accessibility to streaming mobile so discord like i mentioned um, they're launching technology that you can easily stream your screen um, on your mobile phone, which is traditionally it's been kind of hard to do. And, and mobile streamers, I would say, are a, a little bit of a niche. But I think that's going to blow up. And, and, you know, because Riot Games, for example, they took their their premier brand, League of Legends, and they just announced, you know, Wild Rift, is the League of Legends for mobile. Huge, huge deal. Um, actually, Nate Hill, a FaZe Clan athlete, um, he was invited by Riot Games to Los Angeles a couple months ago when Verizon um, unveiled the iPhone 12 5G. And you know, if you look at 5G technology, um, when you're getting a gigabyte download and upload, that's also going to increase people's willingness and appetite for you know, consistent multiplayer mobile games. Like imagine, you know, you're at the mall or you're in the backseat of the car while you're driving to somewhere. Um, you can open Call of Duty Mobile. You can open up Wild Rift and have incredible speeds eventually. So I think that also is going to increase um, esports interest, uh, influencer interest, and then which would ultimately increase the viewership of these titles. For example, FaZe Clan, we're looking at a few mobile games that we want to get into um, next year, uh, potentially Wild Rift, potentially Rocket League, another family-friendly, brand-friendly game that is getting launched on mobile sometime soon. So mobile, big viewership next year. Uh, really excited to see what happens. 
I agree. I had the same exact conversation too on a, on a different um, podcast actually about mobile gaming. Don't you feel like kind of used to be like a little bit of the redhead stepchild? People were like not interested, you know, not not as high quality. Yeah, it's it's like the Candy Crush in the subway. Yeah, you know, like, exactly. That's what that's what mobile gaming uh, was kind of bucketed as, but it, not anymore. You know, you, you got full games like Call of Duty on mobile. You're gonna get real crafty in, in 2021 with those uh those mobile games. That's for sure. All right, what else? Um, so in, in terms of kind of the the esports industry, I'll touch on that a bit. Um. I think there's going to be a ton of investment from different areas of the media and sports industries into esports teams because the success esports teams have had in 2020 has really shown other entities who have been kind of affected negatively by the shutdown. Um, they're like, hey, this could be a really good idea to have part ownership of of an esports organization that has diverse revenue offerings that we can't traditionally provide, you know, um, you know, revenue from prize pools, from brand sponsors, from the merchandise side of, of esports organizations. Um, and then into like the meta of the Twitch and, and YouTube community, um, you'll also see, I think a number of pretty big stars come out with their own organizations. And that's kind of happening right now there's a group of, of pretty big names in the World of Warcraft community in Austin, Texas, that just launched their own organization um, from the ground up. And the, the, the viewership, the subscriber count, the follower count has really proven that uh, it's a model that is really going to pop off next year. So that's uh, One True King, OTK, by a bunch of the WoW communities, uh, sorry, community. Um, Asmund Gold, Ms. Kiff, uh, Rich Campbell, other folks like that started that group. And it's, it's you know, in the several hundred thousand follower count in days. But esports is, is becoming on the same level as your ESPN sports, as your, you know, traditional football, basketball, baseball. And I don't think that's slowing down. I totally agree. Like these people have, these people are popular and have followings and have fans because of their personality, which I, I love which you get, you don't always get with traditional sports. I'd say you kind of have a player in the game, and that's that. Esports has such an ability to showcase the people, and and not to mention, you know, the next generation of of sports fans care so much about values and who who they're supporting, what they stand for, what what they are like, you know, what they care about. And I think this is such a natural segue into how do you support, you know, a, an artist, a player, a, a gamer whatever it may be that kind of stands for what you stand for and it's like it's the next iteration of of sports as we know it yeah so you, you'll you'll see um you'll see teams come out with with new product offerings uh next year like like premium content production um you know high like for example phase clan we just brought in the former evp of of content from the nfl who's a an 11 emmy award-winning producer and he 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 came to Phase Clan because he saw this next evolution of of content of athlete profiles, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, my one, I like this analogy the best. Uh, fans of LeBron James don't have much access to him outside of his social handles, and then watching him play 
in the league. When you look at an esports pro uh, differently, uh, I'll take Nate Hill from FaZe Clan. He's a professional Fortnite player. He streams set, uh, six to seven days a week for four to eight hours a day. Um, and, you know, he's playing. You can see his hands. He talks about his strategy. And then the best part is he sees his fans communicating to him in his in his chat box. So if I'm a huge diehard fan of Nate Hill, you know, I can donate or chat him. And he can literally say, Willis, thanks, man. I appreciate you, dog. Uh, and that doesn't happen in traditional sports, mostly. So this level of, of athlete or influencer engagement to fan, that one-to-one is just tenfold. So it's sticky, right? Um, so, so yeah, viewership across the board, uh, 2020 has increased. We'll see it again, 2021. All right, one more thing. What's your what's your fifth thing for 2021, Willis? Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at the the gaming industry at large and thinking about what's the one title that I think is going to come in in a big way and launch something pretty significant. Um, and I'm going to, my bold prediction is uh, Bungie and Microsoft launching Halo Infinite. It's been delayed. It was supposed to come to us this year. It got delayed. Um, and then they just announced it's coming in hopefully Q3 2021. And I think that title is going to be kind of like the next big thing. And and here's why Um, the audience, you know, the 25 to 35 year old grew up playing Halo. You know, I'm 30 and and that's like one of my top games. You know, the, the original Halo game that came out on the Xbox was just historic. The soundtrack, the game, the storytelling, um, that transforms gaming for people and that doesn't come often. So now that halo is back and they've, and you know, the, the producer and the the publishers have learned so much from gaming in the past two years. I think this delay is good for the game because they're going to heavily focus on competitive. They're going to heavily focus on battle Royale, making it a game that, you know, millions of people are going to watch on a monthly basis and that streamers can make as a foundation of their, of their entertainment. So, you know, phase Clan, we're personally really excited for the title. Um, I think it's going to be huge at the end of the year. So I think that's my bold prediction for big esports titles in 2021. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm excited. Just thinking about it. Master chief. He's back. All right. Thank you so much. This was really fun. I think we could probably talk all day, but we won't do that to our <laughs> listeners. Um, thank you for joining us. I hope that you stop by again. We'll have more conversations about this. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. Uh, what a fun conversation. Such a smart guy. You can reach out to them on Twitter at, at FaZeClan, F-A-Z-E-C-L-A-N. Sometimes we do a segment called One More Thing, where we talk about the intersection of social media and podcasts on the podcast about social media. It's super meta. Our producer, Joey Scarillo, chatted with Ariel Nisenblatt, the community manager at Squadcast, a remote recording platform that we're actually using right now. And she's the founder and curator of the Earbuds Podcast Collective. They chatted about what's next for podcasting. Here are Joey and Ariel. Hello, Ariel. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm so good. Um, we're very excited to have you. Congratulations on 50. Big deal. 
Yeah, thanks. And for, you know, a podcast with a number in the title, any um any milestone is uh is a big deal. Easy math also. So let's get right into it. You know, the big question, what are you looking forward to uh for 2021? I'm looking forward to five things. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got a few things that I'm looking forward to. Um so the the first thing that I've been thinking about and I've been thinking about this for a while, um I think podcasts are going to continue to become more multisensory. So we already know that podcasters, I mean podcast listeners listen while doing a whole bunch of different things. You know, you're you're saving, you're washing the dishes to the end of the day because you want to listen to a bunch of podcasts and it's a great way for you to not be disturbed while listening. You and you kind of enjoy washing the dishes at that point. Or you go for a walk or you're folding your laundry or you're doing this that the other thing. I think that podcast producers are going to be catching on to this and creating content that lends itself to being listened to while people do other things. So the obvious things for that are meditation podcasts, you know, actual instructive meditation podcasts where a listener can put their headphones on, sit down in a quiet room and be instructed on how to spend the next 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes. And (laughs) I like the idea of a walking tour. And I, right now, you know, maybe that's like some sort of meditative walking tour, but I think eventually we're going to see people, producers start producing podcasts that are geolocated. So, you know, when you hit a specific place, it'll trigger some sort of make your own adventure type podcast. And I think the technology is there. We just haven't seen it be developed yet. So uh, I definitely think that that's on the horizon. That's my number one thing. That's awesome. I, I like what you were saying about the experiential podcast. I think based after the year we've had where we've been so deprived of experiences, I think finding ways to do that in the world in 2021 will be exciting. And especially if it's sort of this solo experience, the very, you know, they always say the intimate experience of listening Mm. to a podcast that doesn't involve uh, a group of people or being around others. So it, it really, I think will lend itself well to, to the world that we're, that we're walking into or we're in the middle of or whatever. (laughs) I think that's right. Um, All right. So what is your, what is your number two thing? Continuing forward in the podcast landscape, better audio quality is going to stand out and people are going to have less and less tolerance for non-professional audio quality. The way your podcast sounds, it needs to be good because people are spending their precious time listening to your podcast. And there are so many podcasts out there that have spectacular quality. Um, And if your podcast doesn't, it better have amazing content, but it's just easier to make your podcast sound great. And it's pretty easy nowadays. No, I mean, I think that's totally right. And, you know, there's so many tools out there, too, for podcasters to to sound better with little. You yeah, know, it doesn't uh, take much. USB mics can go a long way, as we've learned very well on this podcast. You know, we went from having a nice studio at our office mm-hmm. to um, everybody having to do it at home. And so what is your what is your third thing that you're looking forward to? Does it have to be something that I'm looking forward to? Oh, could be something that you think is going to happen. This is a trend that I think will continue to happen. It's uh, mergers, acquisitions, and consolidation. Oh, I can see why you're not looking forward to it. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily that it's a that I'm either dreading it or looking forward to it. It's neither really. It's just this is definitely a thing that's happening in the podcast space. Amazon, Spotify, SiriusXM all seem to be making grabs for companies that are doing podcast-related things, whether that's um, whether it's podcast hosting sites, recording equipment, um, ad services, all sorts of things like that. It seems like Spotify, Amazon, and SiriusXM are 
grabbing all of these wherever they can. And I don't know if that's going to end, when it's going to end. You know, Spotify owns so much right now. Right, right. What do you What do you listen to most? I listen on Castbox. I used to work for them. Full disclosure, but I love it. Spotify makes sense for folks who are just getting into podcasts now. Maybe you, maybe it's like Gen Z or even millennials who are who are just getting on the podcast train because it's an easy transition for them. They're already using it. Let's just uh, you know, I'm I'm doing my subway commute or I'm doing my drive. I'm already on the app. Easy to press another button. But for the folks who have been listening to podcasts for five, six, seven years, um, I want the easiest experience for myself, but I also want something that will support me as a super listener. (laughs) And I'm doing air quotes there because I listen to like 35, 40 hours of podcasts per week. So I do listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and for a few years ago, that was being called a super listener, but I'm sure that the the numbers have changed for what is considered a super listener. (laughs) Great. So what is the next trend that you are maybe, or maybe not looking forward to, but, uh, that you see on the horizon? The next thing I see coming up in 2021 is a continuation of what started in 2020, which is remote recording. So with the pandemic, like you said, for your podcasts, a lot of people had to pivot and they no longer were able to go to their offices or go to fancy podcast studios that have really nice sounding sound booths and fancy professional equipment, had to pivot and find a software online that made it easy or at least possible to record remotely. And um, a lot of people did that. And we noticed that at Squadcast that we had a huge uptick in numbers of people who signed up for our service in March and April. And um, that's, I heard across the board that that's a thing that at Riverside, at Zencaster, at Clean Feed, all these remote recording podcast and content creation solutions, there were upticks in the number of people because, you know, people, people are afraid to, to hang out in person. And in a lot of places, it's advised that they don't. And I think that that's going to continue. And not just because um, of restrictions, but also because of the ease of it. Like you and I, I'm in a different city than you. We get to have a conversation. Maybe we would have done this otherwise, but I have been on so many podcasts that I would have never been on otherwise because of the, the easiness and the flexibility of remote recording. So on our sister podcast, uh, gray matter, you know, throughout the first two years, we had a, when we were still able to get into the studio, Um, we had a couple of recordings that were done over the phone. And like you were saying about quality, I found that those episodes sort of had a dip in quality. Um, and so we really looked forward to and tried to push that all of our guests be in person, you know, and we've learned a lot doing the production there. And now that we have things like Squadcast, it just makes it so much easier and, um, really enables us to speak to people, um, you know, all over the world, which we're excited to do in the, in the year to come. Yeah. I mean, I think in-person conversations are awesome. It's a completely different dynamic. You know, you really, you really get to see somebody's body language. And right now, the way that you and I are recording on Squadcast, we can see each other and I am making hand gestures and they are maybe necessary, maybe not, (laughs) but it is helping you read my cues. You know that I'm happy. You know that I'm, you know, having a good time here. And in-person is great for that, but there are, you know, we're really becoming able to see that even on remote recording platforms. So I don't know. I mean, I don't want to advocate for nobody to ever see each other in person again, but also it might be a thing. It might be a thing. It might be a thing. (laughs) 
great. So I've lost count. Was that four? Are we are we rounding out our our list here? Yeah, we've got one more. Great. I'm excited. All right, here we go. Last one. Last thing is that I think that podcasts are going to, and some have already, are going to continue incorporating video elements, but it's going to become much more widespread. And I'm not referring to video podcasts um, because video podcasts are a little bit of a misnomer. If it's a video podcast, it's more really just a video. Um, What I'm talking about is the ability for people who are recording their podcasts to capture their video and then to use either snippets of that or whole segments as part of marketing efforts. So maybe you're, maybe you were pressing record here, Joey, and you would then upload some of this conversation to YouTube. Maybe you'd add some editing elements. Maybe you'd put in some sound effects, make it a little fun, or maybe you're just uploading it naked onto the internet so that it's another place for you to, um, to reach more potential listeners. So, um, I think that, people are definitely going to start doing that with their content. Yeah. I mean, I know for us, that's been, that has been, um, a thought that we we've toyed around with and something that we've, we've wanted to get into. Um, we need our tools to be as easy as possible so that we can do all these awesome things that we want to do because these companies are really experimenting with that and, and getting good and, and really meeting the market need, which is really, um, which is really great. Yeah. I know for Squadcast, we resisted doing video for a long time because we wanted to make sure, first of all, that it was something that our customers wanted. You know, I think there's a tendency to create products and to create features just because the inside team, the team behind the product wants to do it. But we wanted to make sure that it was something that people actually wanted. And we definitely got that. Um, I would say I I run the social media and I would say, I don't know, 75% of the comments we get are when is video coming? It's definitely a thing that people want in this world where we can't see each other face to face. So at least let's see each other on video. Yeah, no, that's great. I love it. I think all of your things were amazing. I think we covered off on every different area of podcasting from the production, the business side of it, the product side of it. And of course, most importantly, at the core of it is the audience side of it, building that community. And that's what we're, that's what we're really excited about. Appreciate you chatting with us and look forward to 2021 in the year ahead and all the cool things that you are doing and all the cool things that are to come. To the things. To the things. Clink. That was so cool. Ariel has a wealth of knowledge about the podcast space. It's truly enviable. And you know who else has a wealth of knowledge? Our next guest, Amanda Getz. Amanda is the CMO at Teal and the founder of House of Wise. Over the last year, hashtag marketing Twitter has become a thing where people are all over Twitter and getting to connect with people who are in the same industry. That's how I found Amanda. Really interesting to see uh, her thoughts on five trends that she sees coming up in 2021. With that, here's Amanda. A lot of people in the social and marketing world have been flocking to Twitter to create community, talk to one another, uh, share empathy and learnings, and just build this amazing community. Hey, yeah, Twitter marketing has been crazy this year. And I will say that like those people have become my family. Like I had people that were literally offering to watch my kids while I was taking Zoom calls and it was incredible. So shout out to all the people who have made this year a little less crazy. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to dive right in. Uh, Let's kick it off with our first thing and we'll chat. All right. So number one. I would say 
the CMO role is getting a reintroduction in 2021. I think there was this rise in the growth marketer over the years as, you know, VC backed companies were coming in and it was just pay to play and CAC was the number one thing you were worried about. Now 2020 really hit marketing budgets. And so we're going to see the brand marketer kind of step forward and actually realize you can build communities and and build companies uh, organically. So hot take, but as a brand marketer, I I really believe it. So that's really hinging on the revival of brand purpose yes, and the need to build that structure of not just what a brand sells, but who a brand is and what their role is in society for their consumer. Uh, and, you know, for us as an advertising agency, the reinvention of the CMO and the reintroduction of the CMO and their role is really critical. Um, I love that. <laughs> so where do we go from here? What's the second thing? Number two. Uh, affiliates are the new influencers. And let me dive into that. I I think the rise of the everyday creator versus the bachelor bachelorette stars being the only influencers in the world. Like, yes, the picture perfect influencer on Instagram will still do partnerships, but we're going to see like TikTok exploded with the everyday creator. Like I have friends from Twitter marketing that now have like over a hundred K followers on TikTok and are getting brand deals. And they're just, you know, like everyday people that just happen to tell really great stories. And I think brands are going to start investing in these everyday creators and, and probably move some of their budget away from the like Mr. Beasts, et cetera, of the world. Love that. We've been talking a lot at Gray about the nation, the nature of co-creation and that a lot of places where brand marketers have failed is the fear of handing over the reins of their creativity to someone else. And with the rise of the everyday creator, you, there's a, you have to cede a little bit of that control, but the result is so much better. It's so much more authentic and deeper. And if content was king, I think now for 2021, content creators will be queens and kings. Um, So really love that take. All right. We're cruising here, Amanda. (laughs) I'm all about efficiency. (laughs) (laughs) I dig it. Um, All right. What's our third thing? So I kind of, it it pairs nicely with number two in that now you have the Mr. Beasts of the world. You have these people that have created massive distribution channels Uh, we're going to see creators as investors in way more companies. And when you think about it, yes, you could pay, you know, Mr. Beast or, or, you know, name your D'Amelio's, whoever, you could pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars to post. But if they own 2% of your company and you exit in five years, they're starting to get smart about the fact that they have more distribution, and they can build these companies. So I think we're going to see these like tiers of influencers really start to break apart in how they're working with brands. That feels like an evolution. So I feel like in 2019, 2020, you saw 
John Legend, the chief sound yeah. officer of Headspace, or Charlie D'Amelio, the creative director for Hollister Jeans. This is actually going a step deeper with a lot more authenticity, where they actually are investing in the businesses and have a vested stake in them growing. <laughs> we're, we're coming around the turn here to our fourth thing. What are we? What are we thinking? What's number four? So number four, I, the role of community is no longer the byproduct of building a great brand or a great product. It's actually at the forefront and you see people who are built like Glossier did this. They were probably like one of the first ones to do this really, really well, where they built the community and layered the brand and the products on top of it. Um, But community is no longer the byproduct. It's actually the beginning. And as we see more and more people build sub stacks and their own personal brands and they're figuring out their own little niche in the world. We're going to see more products to existing communities uh, in the startup space. Interesting. I actually think that is a pivot back for big brands Mm -hmm. who five, 10 years ago, when social was starting to emerge initially, let's call it 10 years ago, the big thing was how many followers did you have? Right. Um, and that was an inelegant way of talking about community size. Right. I think if you look at some of the mass brands that are building great communities, like Wendy's, for example, um, they're not they're seeing community at the forefront as well and are building things for that community. In addition to what you're talking about on like the startup front and what's happening there. I love this. Oh, my God, we are cruising. So let's bring it home. What is our fifth thing? <laughs> So I'm going to say the decentralization of the brand ambassador. And so what do I mean by that? We used to just have the one spokesperson or the two spokespeople that go on the Today Show or or go on their media tours, et cetera. Now, personal brands are becoming so powerful and smart companies are realizing that they can create figureheads throughout their company. And you can really have, you know, Morning Group, Barstool Sports, they all do this really, really well, where you have Kinsey Grant with Business Casual and people are following her and getting their news from her. And she represents Morning Brew in her own way. And I think you're going to see more and more companies that realize the role of personal brands, you're also going to see companies that do not get it and they continue to um, reprimand their employees for building personal brands and being on Twitter and, and creating YouTube channels. They don't, they're not going to get it and they're going to miss out on so many media impressions and so much earned media and so much likability because an employee, you don't own an employee. You just don't anymore. And millennials and Gen Zers are not allowing for it. Like you don't own me. The nine to five is a construct. And so we, if the brands that realize that they should really empower their employees to be their own unique person and brand, but then couple that with the brand that they work for and align it together that's where like magic really happens. Yeah, the the morning brew case is fascinating. Uh, just watching Alex and Toby and Austin and 
Kinsey and everybody is just, um, you know, really breaking through with their own personality and their own, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like how Pod Save America mm-hmm. was built and that entire network, seeing the individualized personalities of all of those people and their own takes and, you know, almost like we used to do with Harry Potter, where we would say, I'm a Hufflepuff, I'm a, I'm a Ravenclaw, like people are saying, I'm a Tommy or I'm a, I'm a love it or I'm yeah. a Pfeiffer when it, so like people are saying they, they can, they align themselves with those personalities and they're creating such connectivity. And if morning brew just came out and it was just Alex and it was just him and his voice, it would feel so one note. So that uh, decentralization is creating unbelievable brand personality, um, which I really love. And, and it's, and it's freeing and creators will want to go there and work with them and people who follow them will want to share it because it feels real. You are unbelievable. <laughs> Where can everyone follow you? What's the, what's the Twitter handle? Amanda M. Getz, uh, G-O-E-T-Z on Twitter. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, have a great 2021 with everything Thanks. you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Kenny, that was awesome. So you guys, not to be a one-upper, but while you got to talk to one person at a time, I was able to chat with two data experts from Twitter. I was joined by Tom Shiriko and Ian Ardoin-Fuma. This is kind of a crazy ask because if anything, 2020 has taught us that you can't predict anything. Um, So I'll hand it over to you guys to walk us through our five things and tell us a little bit about this process. Yeah, thanks, Beth. So um, it is a crazy hard task at the end of a very, very crazy hard year. Um, And I, you know, as Ian and I were going through these things, I think that one of the things that we found most challenging was it's been really, really hard to think about what's right ahead of us. Um, If we think about the trajectory of COVID and kind of what we've been through as an industry over the the past year, um, there's been such seismic shifts in consumer behavior, brand behaviors, um, the implications of those behaviors on, on, on businesses. Um, and we've been asked and challenged, rightfully so, as, as platforms and agencies um, on what those implications are going to mean for the future of our industry, um, not just you know, five months from now, but you know, oftentimes these are changes that are accelerating things that we thought were five years ahead. So we've been almost having to do this like five-year prediction for, for clients in a world, though, where in our personal lives, um, we really don't know it's five days ahead of us. And if you even like look back retrospectively at, at 2020, you probably couldn't honestly tell yourself that there's been a five-day period um, that hasn't been incredibly tumultuous, just like by a human nature and humanity perspective. Um, so there's this really, really tough challenge ahead where we've been kind of like forced to try to pick to figure out what's happening five years from now. We don't know what's happening right in front of us. Now 2021 is less than 30 days away. Um, so we're almost having to predict what's going to happen in a near future, which is incredibly uncertain. Um, so I just wanted to kind of like start off by, by saying that because it's it's kind of crazy to think that short-term planning is often um, the one of the easier things to do. And in this year, we've kind of flipped that model where it's been um, quite hard. Um, so be kind with us here. Um, but ultimately, I think this was a, this was a fun and, and, and really fruitful exercise. Um, so I can jump into our five things um, or, and get us started. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. And no one's holding you to anything. Okay. <laughs> so 
Awesome. Just excited to hear what you guys have to say. That is how I, I, I like to roll. My wife can attest to that. Okay, so um, so for what Ian and and my team do at Twitter as a creative lab um, is we really look at this intersection of creativity and data. Um, and specifically, our remit is to understand how people behave on Twitter, what they're talking about, what actions that they're taking. And then from that information, how we can work with a team of other creatives and designers and strategists to build ideas with brands and agencies that take that information and then get them talking on behalf of the brand. So um, we really kind of sit at this intersection of, of these two worlds of creativity and data. Um, and what I'm most excited about, this is my first sort of um, prediction for, for 2021, um, is that I do believe that 2021 is going to be the year where evidence meets emotion in brand storytelling. And what I mean by that is we've talked a lot for years about creative ideas driven by data, um, but it really hasn't happened at scale. And I think that's because as a general public, a general populace, so as just consumers, um, the integration of, of data and storytelling through data um, has always been incredibly academic um, and oftentimes hard to capture the emotion that a great you know, video spot or, um, or piece of content captures. Why I think 2021 is going to be the year that we catch up to this is that if we think about 2020, all of us have had to be incredibly, become incredibly fluent with data and specifically um, publishers, new, news organizations, creators have had to use data in their own storytelling uh, more than any other year. If you think about with COVID, for instance, I think all of us are now suddenly experts in community spread um, and in you know, the number of days for potential infection rates to happen. Um, you mash that up with you know the other big news moments of the of, of the year. So of course the election, um, as well as um, you know the attention on, around systemic racial injustice and all the incredibly powerful numbers and data that's fueled those stories. We become much more um, I think familiar as people and receptive as people to understanding how data tells a more human and emotional story. I love that and. Selfishly, I also hope that that one comes true. So I'm placing my bets there for sure. I can, I can back up uh, what Tom was saying with anecdote. Uh, I remember uh, in a previous lifetime at Twitter, I presented a data visualization um, of conversations to uh, a board of uh, executives of a CPG brand. And at the end of the presentation, the CMO of that brand said that it was the first time that data made him feel emotional. Uh, and that's a that's a kind of a beautiful compliment to to receive, right? And I think that's the sweet spot of uh, realizing that data, when uh, leveraged in a way that's creative, actually uh, create emotion, and that's a that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, that's a huge compliment. Well done to you. It doesn't happen every day. <laughs> yeah, well, keep that feather in the hat. That's good. <laughs> awesome. That was a great first thing. What's next? Okay, so I have the second one here too. Um, which is a build upon the first one, but I think to for agencies and marketers and platforms to meet the promi the, the promise of having um, data truly integrated in, in how an idea comes to life itself, we're going to need to rethink the talent composition of teams um, that create and build these ideas together. Um, so my, my prediction here, my second one, um, is the emergence of a role um, quite similar to Ian, who's on the, on the call with us right now, um, but the emergence of a, of a role that I'm calling creative scientist, which is um, a person who's going to sit within creative and strategy teams 
that's incredibly fluent with the scientific and analytical methods of mining and understanding and making sense of data, but with an equal passion to how the story is told with that and that how this can connect um, to ideas. Um, and this is, I, I think even personally, as, as someone who's been in this, in this world for a while, um, is something that we've always kind of felt in our gut was, was necessary, but we always thought it was like a little bit of a, of, of a moonshot. Um, and as we even think about like the campaign development or the work development process, we oftentimes think of, of people with a data expertise sort of sitting in the beginning and an end um, of the creative process. In the beginning, you have them kind of working hand in hand with strategists to use data to maybe uncover a, a really unique behavioral insight that can inform a brief. And obviously at the end, whereas a lot of the attention that, that data comes in the, in the social space looks towards is, did it work or not? Um, but where we haven't seen this come to life is in the middle, in the actual idea creation um, part of the creative process. Um, and the reason why is because we, we haven't necessarily put the talent in, the, in, in place and, and required that talent to be an equal parts creative contributor as they are an analytical one or technical one. So much like, let's call it five, 10 years ago, um, when every agency was hiring a creative technologist who can code and ideate at the same time, I think you're going to start to see these really unique roles bubble up um, of, a, of a creative scientist who's equal parts fluent um, in data, but at the same time has the mindset of a creative where they can ask the questions of that data that's going to lead towards richer ideas. That's very cool. So when you think about this creative scientist, um, this sounds a little bit like what my team does. So I'm super interested in this. Love this one. Again, hope it comes through. <laughs> cool. Uh, should I uh, get started on the third one? Yeah, let's awesome. hear it. Cool. So um, third prediction, uh, I mean, that one is pretty straightforward. It will happen. We're about to wake up in a post-cookie world and uh, we're essentially asking the question, what does that mean for us? So as I'm sure we're all aware, Google announced that as soon as uh, 2022, they would remove cookie support from their browser. Uh, and that comes on top of GDPR, that comes on top of possible regulations uh, from the Biden administration. Uh, so that means that we're entering an entirely different world when it comes to targeting. And I, for one, think it's a great thing uh, because if you ask anyone who doesn't work in advertising, if they love that uh, jcrew banner ad that's stalking them across the internet they, they don't love it uh, in fact they probably hate it uh, they're aware of people they're aware of tracking uh, and they they're starting to become a little bit sick of it so uh, you know that's good that challenges us to do things in a different way so in the future when we don't have cookies and we uh, we're targeting people in, in a different way we'll have to ask permission essentially to serve personalized content to people and not the kind of uh, uh, are you okay with having cookies kind of permission but something that's a little bit uh, more intimate and that's i think that's fine we just need to rethink the value exchange between brands and consumers and shift from a mindset that's been all about like um, extraction of value uh, and instead be centering uh, the whole process on what the people actually need, right? Like what's what's the reason why they're engaging with the brand in the first place? And do they actually want that relationship uh, to happen in the first place? So at the end of the day, I think it's going to boil down to two things, which are going to be consent and transparency. Essentially, it's like, um, what data of yours are we using? What are we using it for? 
what do you gain from it? How do you benefit from it? And how do we get back? Uh, I think it's going to be all about that. That's really interesting. It's it's sort of like the progression of personalization through a real value exchange, not kind of that forced cookie targeting that creates, I'm air quoting, personalization that is more um, kind of bucketing versus what the consumer actually needs or wants. Great. That was an awesome third one. Who's taking the fourth? Um, I'm going to take the fourth, um, and I'm calling this fourth prediction um, DTC, and it's not the DTC you think it, it is, um, but I'm actually calling it um, direct-to-creator or direct-to-community. Um, and what this ultimately boils down to in like a no-nonsense way um, is that I think we're reaching, like this year in 2020 has propelled us to reaching a critical mass um, where the general public actually sees a desire and, quite frankly, demands that creators and the communities that they want to be a part of are paid equitably and people are willing to do it. Um, so micropayments and the payment of creators is not new. Um, but I think that the demand from consumers to understand that the people who are making the content they love um, or who are um, you know, owning the experiences that they, that they love need to get paid. And they're actually um, raising their hands to want to make sure that they're supporting those people directly as like a sign of pride um and a recognition of what the value exchange is it's no longer sort of this like black box if you will of like how does this creator i love get paid or how does this community that i'm a part of on online actually thrive um people are are much more i think willing um to to pay for these experiences if you think about like you know in, in this year we've propelled um so many of these things ahead so whether it's you know, paying, you know, a nominal amount to be part of a Substack um, or Patreon um, or, you know, giving money directly to creators that, you know, identify with the values that um, that, that that we have as human beings or, or even wanting to pay directly to, you know, to a, a restaurant that we love that's maybe going through hard times um, because of COVID, but we want to pay for a Zoom cooking class that they're, that they're holding uh, to make sure that we're supporting them. Um, this idea of these sort of small but meaningful payments um, and the recognition um, by consumers um, that creators um, are kind of like the lifeblood of, of the content that they enjoy um, and, and the willingness to contribute to that, um, I think is going to continue to hit critical scale. And, and we saw a ton of this um, take hold um, in 2020. And I think it's only, only going to go further even after we enter this kind of like post-quarantine world, if you will. Um, so I think that we've kind of seen this like trajectory. If you think if you kind of like map this through time, if you will, where people at first were, you know, were very willing to pay for that one premium piece of content you were buying or renting a movie or, uh, you know, or a piece of music. Then it was about, you know, migrating your payment to a subscription service that kind of gives you access to the library of this. Now, um, I think all of us are very willing to, to, um, you know, use our purchasing power direct with the people that we know. Um, are, are making art and work in, in the world and making sure that they're, um, they're equitably recognized for, for what they're providing. Um, so I see this as something big that's, that's going to continue happening in, in 21. If for nothing else is that like the mental barrier for consumers in doing this um, has been broken down this year. So it's going to kind of open the floodgates up to do this even more. Yeah, that 
That one's really interesting. I don't disagree, but I do. I that makes me think. I wonder what the drivers are of that. Like, is it is it the way that people view content as entertainment that and the value of the content, or is it 2020s awoken some sort of kindness in our hearts and recognition of creators um, and the value they bring to our life? Is it the music industry and Taylor Swift? fighting for artists' rights, like, it's it's a, it's a an interesting which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thought in my head. So who's bringing us home? All right, so for the last prediction, I'd like to revisit the idea of context collapse uh, and what that means for us. So uh, you might know that context collapse, it's the idea that was documented by social media scholars, centralized social media platforms. So think like Facebook and Twitter. And so what those scholars had identified was the shift from early social media where people were connecting uh, to specific websites because they were interested in very specific different things. So for instance, I'd be interested in cycling, I'd be interested in video games, I'd be interested in a number of different things, and I'd be visiting different websites to engage with different communities uh, uh, in a diverse way. And um, with the advent of centralized social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Friendster and all the things before that, what we realized is that all of a sudden, all the different contexts of our identities melted into one place. And that's how we end up you know, talking to our mom in this, on the same platform that we we're talking to our coworkers. Uh, and you might uh, remember just from last week, uh, Dion Warwick, the singer who uh, kind of embarrassed her son on Twitter uh, as she interacted with The Weeknd and Chance the Rapper. That was like pretty awkward and, and really cute. Mm -hmm. I think that really proves that uh, context collapse uh, is still around uh, and really strong. But that's a well-known phenomenon. What I think is a little bit new is as we're seeing that platforms are growing older, again, Twitter is like 13 or 14 years old at this point and people have been around for that entire time, identities have shifted and accumulated. One identity doesn't replace uh, the previous one. They kind of accumulate and become just simply more complex and aggregate. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it also goes back to just the new way that it seems we're gonna have to think about users and consumers. Um, and I foresee a lot of algorithms being updated to take this into consideration. At least at the beginning, they're going to be uh, right twice a day, like a broken clock. Right. <laughs> Definitely. I feel super energized after this conversation. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. This was great. Thank you. Thanks, Beth. Thank you so much for having us. What an energizing conversation. I could literally talk to those guys all day long. So this next conversation is a real treat. Juliana, who fills in for us from time to time on this show, um, had the opportunity to spend some time with Justine Armoire, Gray's New York's chief creative officer, about five trends she sees in creativity. Enjoy. Thanks. Justine, welcome to the Five Things Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm excellent. Super excited to be here. I haven't done five things before and I got five things to talk about. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And I'm hoping that since we're, you know, kind of capitalizing on the all the energy that comes at the end of the year that we can just have a really good candid conversation about what you're excited for for 2021 um you know what kind of opportunities you see on the horizon creatively strategically so um you know i'll i'll step back a little bit and just kind of let you reveal to us your 
your predictions for next year. Okay. Julian, I want you to like help me. Like I want to, I want to unpack this stuff with you. My first thing is New York is going to be, it's going to have a, it's going to have a second roaring twenties. And I don't know if this, I think that's something that's like, I'm, I'm p- picking it up just like from, I don't know, from the, the day that the um, Biden Harris uh, announcement was made and I was outside, I live in Brooklyn. I was outside and the whole of Brooklyn became this celebration and then I know that was all happening across New York. And I just got, you've got a sense of what the future is going to be once the vaccine is fully in place and we start going back out into the world more. I think New York is going to have a surge of awesome energy and optimism and it's going to be aesthetically like, <laughs> like, glittery and colourful and I think there's going to be, a, it's going to feel like a super exciting and energized energize and optimistic place. So I'm very much looking forward to that moment. And it's almost like I'm holding on, I'm like in my heart, I'm holding on to that like picture because I think that's what's getting going to get me through the long, bleak COVID winter that, I'm about, that we're heading into. Where do you see yourself in the future Roaring Twenties? Are you going to be part of the Baroque architecture scene, a flapper, uh, <laughs> frequenting squeezies in the back of the Shake Shack? All of it. All of it. I'm going to be 100% fully engaged and out there. But also, um, I think this moment, like this year, is going to give us an understanding of like what we need. We've got, we know ourselves. I know what I need. Like I know my body. I know my what, how much, like my sleep schedule. I know like what I need to like to 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 sort of be myself. So, uh, but yeah, as much as possible, I'm going to be fully engaged in the in the culture of New York. I miss. I came here to have this big New York life, and I have been sat on my ass for a year, and I miss, I miss it. <laughs> I think we all deserve a break from introspection to just fully externalize for a minute. Definitely agree. What else is on the docket? Yeah. Okay. My second, I think that, um, I'm probably going to say this inarticulately. I think we're going to have a new uh, appreciation and a new relationship with truth. And, uh, my partner and I have been talking about this a little bit about how the Trump presidency is, um, almost, and I think there was a, somebody may wrote an article about this like about five years ago and I can't find it. It almost built on the tropes of WWE. Like everybody knows that he's not telling the truth, but his audience is fine with that. It's almost celebrating him as a WWE character in the presidency. And I think that's like people are getting awakened to that. And I think that the, that the, the sanctity of truth will become, and I hope it becomes more important in culture and we can figure out, you know, where inauthenticity is, is toxic and call it out and realise that it can really be damaging in a way that's kind of let it slide the last few years. But I found that really fascinating, that, that sort of insight about him being a wrestling character and, like, or even, and it's like, look, even the way that he talks and his catchphrases and his bravado and the costume that he's always in sort of the same, the same thing. And I think there's like, 
it makes so much sense to me. So I think that the, that the truth is going to become more important. So in the same way that even though we had the sort of like icon that represented how culture had shifted, do you think that just in the same way we're going to need an icon of truthiness in order to have this kind of uh, change in the way that people behave or is it going to be sort of a collective unconsciousness that we, we move in that direction? I think it's going to require a multiple different sources of integrity and sources of truth. And I think you've seen there's some like rising in the political sphere. I think I know I'm a foreigner and I don't know, you know, everything about the American political system. Biden seems like a man of integrity, at least. Uh, and I'm sure is going to have to make some problematic decisions in his presidency. But at least like there's, I don't know, there's like a new picture of integrity and there's a, you know, there's some really exciting voices and faces in the political sphere. And I think it's got to come from, we've got to value those faces and voices, you know, we've got to value those different perspectives. And I think we're doing it. I think it's happening. Yeah. I don't think it can come from one place. How far do you think the authenticity is going to, to, to trickle? So, you know, from politics to consumers to do you think businesses as well will have to be a little bit more just straightforward, fact with facts? This is perfect segue because my third five thing, my third thing and my five things is going to become in our business new voices in, especially creative voices, are going to become, the imperative is going to become so much stronger. And I think it's because, um, you know, for such a long time we've had the same types of leaders leading the work that goes out into the world. And I think that's just not reflective largely of, you know, of the world and of America. And so, you know, this month, this year has given us even more time to reflect on whose ideas are going out into culture. And so, um, yeah, I think it's got to be, I think our, some of our clients, many of our clients, um, and I certainly in the agency, like it's become the urgency around making sure that we're amplifying uh, new voices is, has become great. So I think that's, we're going to, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be, it's going to change the sort of flavor of the work that's coming out. It's going out into the world, the ideas that are going out in the world. I think it's like a real um, opportunity for like a new sort of intelligence. So in kind of connecting it to your first five thing about, you know, the sort of roaring twenties, the, the rebirth of creativity, the rebirth of sort of this, like, you know, this, this love of beauty for the sake of beauty almost. In your ideal world, you know, Justine pulls all the levers. What would be kind of like the piece de resistance that you would like to have come out from a you know, creative agency or just to, to sort of put out in the world as a piece of art to kind of reflect you your energy? Asking me, are you asking me to come up with the ultimate creative idea, like on the spot? It's a, it's a one-line brief. <laughs> oh, look, I think for me... The piece of resistance will be the company that we build at, at, out of this awakening and out of, you know, the types of people that are with us having like so much creative energy and optimism for what they can do, having, you know, a, a deeply diverse mix, especially in leadership, that create a culture where everybody's voice is really valued and supported. And so to me, that's the orientation I want to have is like making sure that we build something that's really modern 
out of this moment. It's really awake and really energized. I mean, you're part of that, Juliana. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I think I feel so lucky that I'm in New York at this moment. All my friends in Australia are like, come home, run, run away. And I cannot tell you how I feel so so grateful that I'm in the industry that I'm in right now, in this city, in this moment. Um, and I just get to be part of like a new and the new wave of advertising and the new wave of creativity in New York, which is the most exciting city in the world and always will be. It's kind of collective rebirth and what better yes. place to be. I feel like, you know, we built a lot of energy in these first three. So no pressure as we go down the list. Fourth thing. <laughs> well, my fourth thing was exactly was going to be, be a new appreciation for beauty and design and art and craft. And um, so I think this year has been everyone. It's been a monoculture that we've been sitting in. Like everyone's kind of like having the same ideas, enduring something in a way that uh, it's just kind of boring. I think like I wish that we could have said we came out of this with like all this incredible stuff and comedy and, but it's, it's not really true. I honestly think it's become, it's just a test of endurance at this point. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe like fortunately, like if you live in New York, you can pretty much endure a lot of stuff because it's a, a, a taxing city to <laughs> live in anyway. I hope that in secretly hidden away, there are artists painting the work of their lives right now and playwrights writing incredible things for us to see. And I hope that we get to go and like experience all that coming out of this. But I think there's going to be a, a bar, a cre- the creative bar will be raised again as we have a, a new appreciation of culture, art, beauty, design, all of that. I'm excited for that. And so bringing in home. I've had such a great time chatting. I feel so upset that it's going to wrap soon. <laughs> Fifth thing. Fifth thing is, I kind of touched on it a second ago, comedy. God, it's got to, we got to, this, what is it? Comedy or comedy is unex, uh, unexpressed rage. Like, com- we have, it just was like, what is it? Also, it's tragedy plus time. Like, with some time on the back of this, we are going to see so much of what's funny and I don't know, like I know it's boring right now and I was hoping there'd be more comedy about it now, but it's still a bit soon. <laughs> and, but I do think of course there's, there's a lot of tragedy right now and genuine tragedy, but like the tragedy of us losing a year of our lives and you know, the sort of that, that stuff I think is going to find its way into humor and I hope that we laugh a lot in the future. Do you think that the loss of maybe like, you know, comedy also being that, that shared experience, that just the absence of that will perhaps be a premise of comedy for a little bit? Yes, absolutely. You, you know, you still need, it's like the shared rage that we feel about the loss of that year or, you know, the loss of just like, or just the experience of, of the government or like the, the fear around the vaccine. Like there's all, there's a lot of shared rage that will become shared comedy. Nothing I just said was funny. <laughs> like I bet you there'll be a future that we will be able to talk about it in, in ways that we'll hopefully laugh at. Fantastic. This has been really insightful and really great, Justine. Thank you for joining us on five things. 
uh, you know, here's to 2021. I'll, I'll see you at the speakeasy. Uh, I'll be there. I might even like open one downstairs or something. (laughs) I'll be behind the bar. (laughs) Night job. Thank you so much, Juliana. Here's to 2021. It's going to be great. Any chance we get to chat with Justine is guaranteed to be a good time. Okay. So we've talked about financial tech, data, podcast, content, gaming, creativity, but finally social networks. And to close this one out, I sat down with one of the original hosts of this show and our dear friend, Toby Daniels. Here's that conversation. Toby, welcome back. Kenny, how are you? I'm so glad to see your smiling face and hear your shining voice. It's been literally too long. It has. Looking forward to 2021, what do you see? Well, um, this is a timely conversation because we just recently announced Social Media Week's global theme for 2021, which will be reinvention, rebuilding the systems of social media marketing for a better future. So we've been thinking a lot about the future. We've been writing a lot about the kind of trends that we think will be important as they sort of evolve over the course of the next 12 plus months. Obviously, this has been a pretty um, tumultuous year. That's the best word I can possibly sort of think of been a disruptive year. It's been a year of change. Um, But I think that coming out of 2020, coming out of that disruption and change, we've got some really interesting things to look at. Um, We've done some work this year with with, with Rashad Tabakawala, um, who's the author of Restoring the Soul of Business. And he developed a framework called the ABCDE of Marketing Reinvented. Um, This framework has sort of underpinned our theme for next year and it's been super kind of informative to us as we sort of think about how do we organize our ideas, how do we organize the kind of trends that we think are important. So we're looking at audiences, brands, content, data, and enterprises, these like big buckets that really sort of help us to kind of focus the questions we want to ask and focus the kind of um, insights that that we want to share. So when I think about next year, I think if we start with like audiences, right? Some of the questions we're asking are like, who are we marketing to? How do we find them? How has the consumer mindset shifted? Like we're just, you know, seeing this extraordinary transformative change, behavioral change that's happening. And so how has the mindset of the average consumer shifted? Um, how can we think about consumers as people and not necessarily as consumers, right? So what I think under audiences is going to be interesting is that like we're going to continue to see like a fragmentation, right, of audience. Um, it's a kind of a, a trend that we've now seen for a, a few years now as people start to kind of move and migrate and spend time on more um, platforms and within more sort of social media environments. I think people are also seeking out different types of experiences, right, as they're spending so much more time online as they kind of continue to be kind of remote and, 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 and not able to do normal things in life. They're seeking out fun. They're seeking out communities that provide support. They think they're seeking out more positive environments and experiences, which I think is really interesting. And it's also the reason why I think, you know, platforms like TikTok and gaming platforms and gaming experiences are probably going to be the winners in terms of like capturing the lion's share of consumer attention over the course of next year, because these environments tend to be less toxic, more positive, more fun, more supportive than than some of the other social media platforms. So that's just audiences. I love that. I love, first of all, I love the theme. I think the theme is great. It's so critical. It's right for the industry. It's right for uh, the time that we are living in coming out of 2020. Uh, And 
I love the who, how, and mindset shift of the audience space. Uh, amazing. So A is audience. All right. B is brand. So brands, they continue obviously to be important, but the way that they are built, the way they evolve, I think is changing greatly. And our relationship to brands has become much, much more complicated in, in a good way, I think. But I think the question is like, how, how should like experience as it relates to brand and how should purpose um, play a role into kind of, you know, brand strategies as we go forward? And I think that like, one of the one of the things that like I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is this idea of serving um, versus selling, right? This this isn't something that I necessarily have coined, but it's come up so many times in customer kind of conversations. It's come up during research that we've done this year. It's like 2020 was the year to serve, right? Not sell. But I think in 2021, what we'll realize is that serving should actually be the foundational principle of how brands think about their relationship to consumers. Um, and, and they will recognize that to have success, to have business success, if you don't have that foundation of serving versus selling, then I think you'll struggle to capture the, the hearts and the minds of consumers in 2021. To the point of serving versus selling is this notion that during COVID, uh, we almost required brands to be what I was calling the three H's, which were human, honest, and helpful, um, which I think if you package that together, that's sort of at the heart of serving versus selling. Um, and I love, the, if you see the brands that are emerging um, in, in 2021 and, and are, are taking the end of 2020 by storm, that is how they're behaving. It's very admirable. B stands for brand. Yeah. Take us into C. Absolutely. Yeah. So C stands for content, right? So what are we asking here? Content's also always been obviously key to how we do marketing. There's obviously a lot of content out there. There are new and cheaper, faster ways to make content. But the question is, how do we cut through the noise? So a couple of things that I think are important to think about just when we when we project into 2021. We consumers in general just continue to thoroughly enjoy the endless scroll, right? TikTok, the, you know, probably the the one of the the masters of of the endless scroll because their algorithm is just so good and their content is organized and delivered to you based on interest, not based on necessarily who you follow. Means that there is no limit to that experience. Just your own discipline in terms of being able to shut it off right? But people love it. And there's a reason for that. Netflix. Netflix is the equivalent of the endless scroll because Netflix will literally serve up an infinite amount of content for you, more content than you could possibly ever, um, ever consume. So algorithms will continue to fight for our attention. But in my opinion, and you'll love this, obviously, at Gray, creative will always be more important. And we have to double down on creative over the course of the next year, if we are going to capture um, people's attention with content. I absolutely, this is my jam. I feel this inside and out. Uh, content is king and the content creators are the king makers, you know, aptly placed in the middle of your ABCDE, it's right in the center. Um, content will continue to be the center in 2021. All right, shall I go on to to, uh, to number four? Yes, number four, Data, what is it? Of course, 
Um, we love to talk about it. Um, no one really understands it, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, next year, we just should be looking at th this. Is I think one of the most important things for us to kind of like carry into the into into twenty twenty one. Less data should, and I think will provide more insight in twenty twenty one. What does that really mean? Metrics that matter, right? Metrics that are tied to company and or tied to campaign and business performance um, is where we should be focusing. And the only way we can focus on that is by reducing the amount of data that we're necessarily looking at and focusing more on um, quality um, and focusing on, on data that just really helps us to understand what is happening. Um, and I think that marketers are overwhelmed. I think the amount of MarTech, ad tech that's out there that's only kind of making the situation more complicated for marketers. Um, it's just, it's a challenging time. And I just think that we have to move forward with this like idea and this mantra that less data will provide more insight if we can just focus on what matters. Interesting. Uh, is it le less data with higher quality and better insight or is it a better ability for us to read that data? I don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's a really fascinating one for me. And, and we are all playing 5D chess every single day as we market because uh, our audiences are evolving and the way they consume is evolving and the way they purchase is evolving. And I think it's interesting to say less data with more quality, but I wonder, I don't know. That's very, that, that's the first one you've said where I'm kind of like, Hmm, I don't know if I agree, <laughs> but uh, excited to see how that, how that one plays out. All right. Fifth and final E the enterprise kind of some overlap with brand to a certain extent, but what I really want us to focus on when we think about the enterprise is actually to think about the leaders within these enterprises. What is, what, what are their, roles and responsibilities as they go into the next year. Like a progressive company is is one where like information and decision making is transparent and where leaders are like held accountable. Um, but at the same time, we also have to think about the ways in which we can kind of take the power and the control that an enterprise holds and put it back in the hands of the people um, who matter, which are, you know, the consumers and, and, and the key stakeholders. So 2021, I think, will be the year, and we've talked about this a lot, Kenny, you've been a phenomenal supporter of our work here as well. But I think that 2021 will be the year of the empathic enterprise, right? Look for businesses who, and brands who truly understand how to perspective take and how to put themselves in the shoes of others. The opportunity here um, for, for a business and for business leaders is to invest in their empathic skills and their empathic understanding and to invest in establishing this deep, deep connection to the customers and the people, the human beings that they ultimately serve. Uh, and I'm excited for that. And I'm excited to continue to sort of, you know, um, move this kind of um, this conversation forward. And I'm continuing to bring more people together around this conversation, of course, in the next year, because I just think it's um, probably the single most important thing that we should be talking about. Hands down, no question. Um, there will be two vaccines in 2021. And the first one is going to stop the spread of COVID. And, and the other one is a dose of humanity and empathy, uh, which has become, I, I think, critical to reclaiming uh, 
our freedom as a, as a society. Um, this is not a political podcast, but I think um, empathy in society comes from the top and from different signals. And I think brands have a role to play. I think our government has a role to play here in the U.S. Um, and I think that there's the winds are shifting, and that's going to be um, it's it's going to create a more empathetic society across the board, and it's critical. It's critical to save our our, our society. Um, so, Toby, that was fantastic. Thank you. Um, audience, brands, content, data, empathetic em enterprise. Um, five things from Toby Daniels, which I'm very excited to see play out in 2021. Toby, before we go, a couple quick hitters, no explanation, just rapid fire, answer the questions. I know you're, this is your, this is your jam. I know you can do it. So, um, who was your top artist on Spotify in 2020? Uh, the Frozen soundtrack. My my kids do a lot of driving this year. I mean, I had just an extraordinary amount of driving this year. My kids love Frozen, obviously. What's the last thing you binged on Netflix? I'm I'm actually just about to uh, finish the Manhunt series. Uh, what is your favorite podcast right now? This one. Um. I'll give you two if that's okay. So the Prof G show with Scott Galloway um, and connected to that, his pivot podcast with uh, Kara Swisher. What is your favorite TikTok dance? Dance? Dance. Uh, you know, I, I consume a huge amount of TikTok content. I, I never really like pay attention to kind of like what they're called, unfortunately. Um, I think, I mean, obviously the latest meme is is the kind of I'm a ghost that one um I, I you know i like it because there's a technicality to it but also almost anyone can at least try and have a stab so that's the probably the most prevalent meme on tiktok right now that everyone is joining in on with the with the app or whatever they're using to be able to do that kind of ghosting effect so that's probably my favorite right now and you might have just answered the question but what's your favorite social platform today uh, um I'm pausing only because the obvious answer would be TikTok because that's probably where I'm spending most of my time. And, and you know, there's a reason for it, right? I really always love to immerse myself in something new. I'm totally a passive consumer. I don't create, I don't follow, I don't like, I don't tag, I don't do anything. I just consume and it's something, and for me, it's just like, it's that, you know, you go for that like dopamine hit when you're looking for likes and things like that. For me, TikTok is just much more about escapism. And it's pure escapism for me and i i really thoroughly enjoy it although i probably could do with you know um reining it in a little bit <laughs> amazing well toby thank you in for always being an amazing partner of the team here at gray um you had an extreme like everyone an extremely um interesting 2020 and have pivoted to do some pretty incredible things so Thank you for joining us on the pod. I think everyone should check out Social Media Week Plus, uh, the new online platform that Toby and his team have created with amazing content from some of the best, smartest, brightest thinkers in the social marketing content data space. Um, and Toby, we hope to see you again in 2021 when all the things that you've predicted come to fruition. <laughs> well, thank you very much for saying all those wonderful things. SMW dot plus forward slash discover. Not only can you find incredible content on that platform, but you can always check out the show that Kenny, Kenny Gold and his team hosts 
um, the comments section, one of my favorite shows of 2020. And we can't wait for it to return next year. But thanks, man. I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to speak with you. Well, that was a lot of fun to catch up with Toby. With that, Beth, Amanda, this year has been quite a journey. Yes, it has. But a pleasure to be on. I couldn't end the year in a different way. I mean, you could. I wouldn't want to. There you go. <laughs> I want to say thank you and Happy New Year to both Beth and Amanda. Their partnership and creativity is just what makes this podcast special. I also want to say thanks to Juliana for jumping in from time to time and making sure that every so often we can give our voices a break. I'd also like to personally say thank you to Andrew and Grace for finding our stories and creating the newsletter each week, to John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde for their continued support, to Guy and Emily at Gramercy Park Studios for making the show sound great, to Danielle for helping to produce the show every single week, and finally, to our intrepid producer, the man behind the men and women of the Five Things podcast, the earphones, the microphone, Joey Scarillo, thank you so, so much for everything you do to make this podcast a reality. Finally, and most importantly, we want to thank you, the listener. We make this show for you, and we hope we can continue to bring value and be a part of your work week for another 50 episodes or more. We couldn't do it without you. In the coming year, please tell your friends about the show. And feel free to reach out to us on Gray's social channels or email us at podcastsatgray.com. That's podcastsatgray.com. We will be back in January 2021. And as always, stay safe, stay smart, stay social. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Petty and Grace McDougall. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.